together. Father in heaven, we come before you once again to explore, Lord, the riches of your grace, the magnificence of your character, the glory, God, of your salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we need desperately the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our midst to uh, give us open eyes and ready hearts, Lord, that are willing to run in the way of holiness that you've set before us. So we pray for the company of your precious Holy Spirit amongst us tonight. We pray, come Holy Spirit, come and fill this room. Grant us, Lord, a sense of your greatness tonight. Grant us a sense of your awesomeness. Grant us a sense, O God, of your glory. For we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So let's turn now to your second handout. And last week we, t we, gave, uh, we talked a lot about the background of the, the uh, 39 articles. And I mentioned to you uh, at various points the Council of Trent. This was a, a, an official ecumenical council of the, of the Roman Church. It considered it authoritative. And uh, it is in many ways... Uh, a response to the Reformation. And the articles, in many ways, are a response to, the, do to the, de the decrees of the Council of Trent. And so it's very important for us, in, as we're seeking to understand what Anglican doctrine is and what Reformed doctrine is, that we get a sense of the context that was shaping things. And I know many of us aren't familiar with the official teachings of the Roman Church, and this is not to bash Rome, but it's simply to give us an understanding of what the Anglican reformers were trying to do, how they were responding, and how they were articulating the doctrines of grace. <clears throat> so what I've done, this is, this is very, uh, just a sliver of a number of the decrees that, we, that come out of the Council of Trent. This is official Roman Catholic doctrine. This has never been repealed. This has never been revoked. It still stands today um, because it was an ecumenical council. <clears throat> so what, what, what I want to do is uh, briefly to read through some of these. So we've got a section on the Mass, which is the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, a section on justification, a section on purgatory, and a section on the priesthood. Now, these four things are going to help us as we move forward. And once we go through the, these, then I want to look at uh, article number one tonight. <clears throat> so the Mass. Now, these are all... You'll see the, the word anathema at the end of each of these. I'll explain that as we get there. So number one, on the Mass, if anyone says that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered means nothing else but that Christ is given us to eat, let him be anathema that is accursed. Now, how do we understand that? What does that mean, a sacrifice? Well, look at this arrow here. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory, that is, it satisfies. And by means of, the, of it, the sacrifice that is the Mass, we obtain mercy. For the Lord, appeased by the oblation, that is the sacrifice of the Mass, and granting the grace and gift of repentance or penitence, forgives even heinous crimes and sins. For the victim, that is the Mass, Christ, is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priests, those who performed the sacrifice, who then offered himself on the cross. The manner alone of offering being different. So, what does that mean? 
in the Roman mind, in the time of the Reformation, and the doctrine still stands today. Whenever the priest performs the Mass, the sacrifice of Christ is happening again, and it needs to happen again. Christ needs to die again. <laughs> Look at the words there. The manner alone of the offering is different. What's the manner? What's the difference of the manner? Well, one was bloody, one was bloodless. Now, again and again, in Reformed doctrine, in Anglican doctrine, you'll see the one final atonement for sins. We say that nearly every time we do Lord's Supper, we repeat those words, once and for all, once and for all, it happened once and for all, and that sacrifice was sufficient. In the Roman context, it's not sufficient. It has to happen again and again, and every time the priest performs the Mass, Christ is sacrificed again. Number one. Number two. If anyone says that Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Now, have you noticed when we do Lord's Supper together, we offer you our praise and thanksgiving as we come as part of our liturgy. Cramer deliberately inserts that in there to say any kind of sacrifice that we're talking about here is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That's the only sense in Cramer's mind. Here it says, if anyone says that the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, a sacrifice that atones for sin, or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not be offered for the living and the dead for sins, let him be anathema. Okay, so item number two now. In the Roman Catholic mind, when the priest performs the Lord's Supper, it satisfies, it atones for the sin not only of the one who comes to receive it, but when it's done as a work, it satisfies for the sins of those who've died that still need more cleansing. Okay, so the Mass in the Roman Catholic mind is a work to be performed for the good of those who've died. Okay, number two. This follows in number three. If anyone says that it's wrong to celebrate Masses in honor of the saints, or for obtaining their intercession, let him be anathema. Okay, now item number three. The Mass is not only performed to help your, your, your uncle, who died kind of, you know, he was a believer, but he kind of, he died in the middle of, of being a, a drunken fit, right? And so he's, he's got to be cleansed some more, so he needs our help. He needs our help, okay? That's number one. But you can also do it to earn the prayers of the saints. It's a, a work that makes you, Josh, meritorious of a dead person's prayers. You're earning something through that. And if we don't believe that, you're accursed. Bad luck for you, bad news for you, yes. Number four, if anyone says that masses, wherein the priest alone communicates sacramentally, are unlawful, let him be anathema. So often in the 16th century, in the time of the Reformation, you'd go to church, and just the priest would communicate. He'd go through the whole ritual, often just in Latin, so you wouldn't understand a word. He would take it alone. Everyone else would just watch him. Why? Why would you do that? What's the point of that, according to the Roman mind? Because it's a work. <laughs> it's earning something. You don't have to take it to get the benefit. You just do it, and as a work, it earns prayers from the saints. It can help your uncle who've died in a drunken fit, etc., etc. So it's not about the individual joining to Christ. It's a work to obtain merit from, uh, from, from God. Um, 
Number five, if anyone says that the Mass ought, not to be, ought to be celebrated only in the common tongue, to be understood by the common person, let him be anathema. Once again, you don't need to understand. It's not important to understand. Now you notice in the Anglican tradition, the richness of the scriptural vocabulary that surrounds our, our communion service. We have scripture, it's, sandwich, it's packed with scripture. It's just sandwiched with scripture all around it. Why? Because it's important to know what's going on. Your understanding needs to grasp. There's a, what Calvin would call a noetic element to it. The mind needs to understand what's happening. It's not some magic rite. It's not abracadabra. I don't know if I've told you this before, but in the, in, the, um, in the time of the Reformation, many of these priests would, would walk through it in Latin, but they weren't learned priests. They had, a, they had a, smattering of, a spattering of Latin, and so they would go through the Latin rite. No one else was performing. No one else was communicating. No one understood what was going on. They'd, they'd mumble through as an unlearned priest. They didn't know Latin. They just knew a little bit of the rite. And so as they went, around, went through it, part of the rite was, this is my body. Hocus corpus meum in Latin. Well, when an unlearned Latin priest says hocus corpus meum, he slurs it and mumbles it till it sounds like hocus, hocus corpus, hocus corpus, hocus pocus. I'm just going to say the magic words, hocus corpus meum, and ta-da, the work is done. No one knows what's going on. No one's communing with Christ. No one's seizing the Lord in faith. It's just a magic word. So hocus pocus comes from this, this idea of priests just using a, a magic word to make some magic event happen that's going to sprinkle you with, with merit and grace. Yes? What does hocus corpus mean? Hoc est corpus meum. This is body my. This is my body. Hoc est corpus. Where we get the word cor corporeal. Like ad hoc, or, or uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc. <laughs> it's, it's this, yeah, post hoc after this. Post. This one, like. Yeah. You said none of these have changed, right? Nothing has been repealed here officially, no. But then they don't say it in Latin anymore. No, they don't. So since Vatican II, there was, there was, um, there was change, and they allowed uh, the vernacular but they have not disallowed the Latin rite only. So the, what it says here, if anyone says that Masses, um, sorry, number five, if anyone says that Masses ought to be celebrated um, only in the common tongue. Now, Rome doesn't say that today. They say it may be celebrated in the common tongue, but if no one understands, if it's all in Latin, so you know the church that Mel Gibson belongs to, or be belonged to, I don't know where he is now, but he belonged to a church that believed only in the Latin rite. Um, and that was, that's permitted by Rome still. Yeah. So the reformers came along, and their idea was we need to understand the words of institution. We need to know what is happening here. And that's why the reformed Anglican rite is so packed with scripture. It's the, whole, the whole service is filled with the word as a response to this. Number six, if anyone says that Christ given in the Eucharist is to be eaten spiritually only and not really transubstantiation, let him be anathema. Now, do you know when, when you, often when you come up to the, to the front to receive the Lord's Supper, I'll say one of two things to you. Uh, the body of Christ, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Or, the body of Christ, take and, take and eat, feed on Christ in your heart by faith. 
It's by faith. It's spiritual connection to Christ, spiritual nourishment. It's mysterious. It's glorious. But we're not gnawing on the ankle bone of Jesus. We are not gnawing on the ankle bone of Christ. In the Reform Roman tradition, the idea of transubstantiation, that Christ in his totality, not only in body but also in soul, is, is enclosed in the elements, is locally confined to the elements in his totality. Every, every, the same DNA that was present with the disciples around the, the, the supper is there, it's confined. Now, Calvin is horrified by this. When Calvin thinks of the Christ, any kind of local presence, local, local confinement, presence in there, he's just horrified by it because where's Christ according to Scripture? He's seated where? At the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, however we're, we're communing with Christ, for Calvin and the Reformers and the Anglicans, it's spiritual. It's mysterious. It's feeding on Christ, surely, but it's by faith and it's a spiritual event. It's through the Holy Spirit. Uh, not the locally confined body and blood and soul of Christ. Okay, so that's a, now this is just a, a little bit, it helps you to understand a bit of, of differences with the Mass and why, why um, they had such a, a problem with this. Now look at what we get to justification. Now justification is the doctrine, just if we're not familiar, justification is the pronouncement of the sinner as righteous before God. To be justified means that God the Father looks at us and he says that you are as righteous as my son Jesus Christ. We are justified when we have the righteousness of Christ upon us. Um, entirely. In toto. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every repentant sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, in such a way that there remains not any debt of temporal punishments to be paid in this world or in the next, in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. You are accursed if you think that you are justified before God and that there's not, no more to be paid. Remember the old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. There's stuff for you to do in the Roman Catholic mind. You must earn part of your justification. Look at the next page. Flip it over. If anyone says that good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained and not the cause of the increase of justification, let him be accursed. Now, in the Protestant mind... And in the Anglican Church, all good works are the fruit of our justification. We, are, we believe in faith, and we start bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We believe, we're justified, we're children of the Father, we start now bearing the fruit of the kingdom. We now love to do the law of God because the law of God is inscribed in our hearts. It's in our, the warp and woof of our nature. Um, it's always, it always follows the fruit of justification. In the Roman mind, it's not. Now look at the little arrow there. Faith cooperating with good works increases the justice which believers have received through the grace of Christ, and they are still further justified by their good works. So in this life, part of the goal for the Roman Catholic is to increase their worthiness before God. 
by what they do. They must increase their justification. Well, that's what Luther struggled with. How much is enough? Now, in, 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 in answer to that, in the Roman mind, people who achieve sainthood in this life are far, far and few between. Most people have to go to purgatory to pay for the remainder of their debt. Three, if anyone says that the grace of justification is only attained by those who are predestined unto life, let him be anathema. So, predestination has really nothing to do, or, or not, it, it is not alone to do with our justification. Four, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake alone, let him be accursed. Now, how much further from the scripture can you get? Now, I'm sorry for getting excited here, but I, I, I need you guys to understand why it is why it is that the reformers suffered the flames and were burned to death. It is Christ alone by which we are saved. By grace and not by works, lest anyone should boast. It is by grace you're saved through faith, Paul says. And now look what, the, what, what Trent says. If anyone says that grace whereby we're justified is only the favor of God, number, number five there, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Number six, if anyone says that all our works done before justification are truly sins or merit the hatred of God, let him be anathema. You can please God before you're justified. You can please God before the blood is applied to you. You can please God without Christ. It is, is utterly opposed to how we think as, uh, as biblical believers. This was a huge component of the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith, Christ alone, solus Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone. It's not us. Um, and we'll see this through the articles, uh, especially when we get to justification. Purgatory, here we go, finally. Uh, two, more, two more here. Purgatory, there is a purgatory, and the souls there detained are helped by the intercessions of the faithful, but principally by the acceptable sacrifice of the altar. So the priest's work at the altar, by the way, the Anglican church never ever calls the table an altar. That's, a, that's Roman vocabulary. It's never an altar, what is it? It's the table of the Lord. It's the Lord's table, it's an altar. What do you do in altars? You sacrifice. We are not sacrificing Jesus on Sundays. We are going to feast with him. He spreads a table, he spreads a feast, so that we may be enriched by his grace. We're not killing him again. He doesn't need to be killed again. He was offered once and for all, we read in Hebrews. Um, and so it does not need to be repeated. So that work by the priest is helping people in purgatory who are suffering to make themselves pure. So in the Roman mind, no unpure thing shall enter into heaven. Um, faith in Christ is not enough. Faith in Christ is not enough. You must earn the favor of God by your good works. Two, let the bishops take care that the intercessions of the faithful who are living, to wit, the sacrifice of the masses, prayers, alms, and other works of piety, which have been wont to be performed by the faithful for the other faithful departed, be piously and devoutly performed. So there needs to be, there needs to be watch in the Roman mind that the 
the good living people are making sure that they're working hard not only for themselves, but for those who've died before them to make sure that they can get out of purgatory sooner. Now, this is not about people in hell. For the Roman, just like for us, you, once you get into hell, there's no getting out, right? The sign outside of hell, like Dante puts it, abandon hope all ye who enter here. You never get out of hell. Everyone gets out of purgatory eventually, depending on how well you, your relatives are praying for you. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds a lot like the, like the, the uh, Asian religions of, of kind of uh, honoring your ancestors and, and helping your ancestors through life, <laughs> through the afterlife, that is. It sounds a lot to me like what they did to Egyptian pharaohs when they're passing through to make sure they're doing the right things for them so that their afterlife could be as pleasant as possible. No one can affect your afterlife but Jesus. No one can make it better but the Lord. His grace, His grace is enough. Yeah. So not everyone goes to purgatory, but everyone who goes to purgatory gets out. Most people go to purgatory. The few who don't are, the, are those who achieve sainthood in this life. They're beatified. Yeah. But they're few and far between. And what they do, usually saints perform over and above. And those are called works of super irrigation. And they're stored in a bank. So every now and then the Pope can draw out of that bank of extra works and he can dispense them if you buy an indulgence. Now I didn't include the section on indulgences here because I thought that would be over the top. But the Pope has access to the works of supererogation, and if you, in the 16th century, purchased an indulgence, then he could give you, you and your loved ones, some time out of purgatory, because, you know, Mother Teresa did more than she needed to do. Yeah, it's called the, the, the great merit, of, the great uh, treasury of merit. So Yes, there is, no, there is no purgatory for people in hell. Okay. Yeah, people who go to hell never go to purgatory. So if you're a believer, you go to purgatory and eventually get to heaven. But if you're not a believer, you go. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Where did I get purgatory? I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, so what happened in, in the 5th uh, century, um, St. Augustine, whom I loved, I love him, mm -hmm. and we're going to be talking about him. One of his darker moments was he... he, he um, he toyed with an idea. He toyed with the idea of purgatory. It was never official for him. Um, it, was, it was speculation. Now, all theologians get in trouble when they speculate. Speculative theology is bad. It's just always bad. And he got himself in a bit of trouble, and he, he toyed with the idea, and then Gregory the Great, who comes on later on, takes something that's on the very periphery of Augustine's thought, and on the margins, and it's just speculation, and he takes it and he makes it official doctrine. Um, there are, some, there are some verses in the New Testament, those who will escape as if uh, by flames. Um, there's, you know, there's talk about, about uh, burning, our works will be burned up um, at, at the end, um, at, at the judgment. Um, there are some verses that can be stretched out a long, long way and developed and teased out and massaged and manipulated to, to form a doctrine of purgatory. But there's, there's nothing nothing scripturally uh, consonant with the doctrine of justification by faith. Yeah. Um, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in the New Testament. It's not to go to a second place um, to work for sins that Christ has already paid for. 
In the Bible, the cross is sufficient. It's the answer. There's, we don't need anything else. Um, and that's the beauty, I think, of uh, the, the doctrines of grace. I, in Rome, too, it's to get into purgatory or get into heaven, you need to be in the church. Yes, you do. Yeah, you that, do. That's the, you can, that's the key, right? It's to be baptized, to be in the church. And yeah. The well, and yeah, and we're, we're just anathema. We are. Yeah, yeah all this stuff. It means accursed. You're cursed. You're you're cut off from Christ. Yeah. Finally, now I want just one, one more one more one more line, which I think is important uh, on the priesthood. If anyone says that those who do not preach are priests at all, let him be anathema. You can be a priest without any reference to preaching the word of God, because. It just wasn't that important. What's most important? Doing the magic right. Doing the, doing the performance of the... Now, in the Protestant tradition, we have a high view of the sacrament. We have a high view of preaching. We say boldly that it's both of these things offered to the people of God. We preach the word, and we, we, we administer the sacraments, and they're both vitally important to us. We don't diminish one or the other. Um, in the Roman mind, preaching... Is way, is way down here. In fact, it's so far down here that you don't even re really need to do it. In the Protestant mind, the pastor leads by the word. It's the staff that he leads by. It's the crook. And uh, Jesus' charge to Peter was to feed the sheep. Feed my sheep. And P uh, Paul charges Timothy, preach the word. Be in season and out of season with all the rebukes and exhortations that go along with it. Um, that's how leading happens. We lead by the word, um, and not without it. And that's not the case for the, for the Roman Catholic. Yes, no, that's of course. Um, so when someone mentions the priesthood of all believers, yes. that, like, how does that relate to this, or does it relate at all? I've heard a lot of priesthood of all believers lately, uh, in the last couple of days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the priesthood of all believers was very important to the Reformation. And uh, it was important because, especially when you think of the, the priest as a kind of a, um, uh, um, the one who has immediate access to God, and the lay people are kind of way, way down the stream. Um, that's not how we think. We all have immediate access to God. There are roles, right, in the church. There are preaching roles, there are teaching roles. Um, and those are important, and they're honored roles, I think. I, I love the, I love the, the phrase, um, you know, if God has called you a preacher. If God has called you to be a preacher, don't stoop to be a king. Um, and so these are honored roles, but they don't mean that we have less access. Talk about the priesthood of all believers. They attack... It's like a caste system almost, in, in the clergy, had more immediate access to God than the average Joe. So that's, that's where I think the distinction is for them. It doesn't mean that, that certain individuals don't have certain rights in the church, like the minister to preach and to administer the sacraments. But even then, I don't have closer access to God than any of you do, right? Because we all have boldness to enter the throne room of grace and to receive help in time of need. It's just more about role than it is about access to God. That's the distinction there. So that's, that's a, 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 well, it wasn't that brief, but that was a, a walk through so that you understand 
what I mean about the Protestant revolt against Roman dogma. And so that you are absolutely certain, none of this has been repealed, none of this has been revoked. This is still in force today. This is an authoritative council. And, um, and uh, listen, that doesn't mean we, we don't make a bully pulpit. It would never be my aim to get into the pulpit in Christ Church and to, and to kind of attack Rome like many Protestant churches do. I have no interest in that whatsoever. It doesn't mean that there aren't genuine believers in Rome in spite of bad doctrine. Uh, it, just, it just helps us understand why the articles came together the way that they did. Um, and it helps us to understand why we're not Roman Catholics and why we should not move back to the Roman Catholic Church. We should not go back that way. <laughs> the doctrine's not good. And bad doctrine hurts people. Bad doctrine hurts people. Uh, eventually what happens, guys, in, in the Roman church, I didn't put it in here, um, assurance of faith is a no-no in the Roman mind, especially in the Council of Trent. You, you can't be assured that you belong to God. You cannot be assured. You might have some idea, but you can't be assured that you belong to God. Um, and um, thank God that we don't believe that. There's great, great joy in knowing that we belong to our Father. Okay, now let's go back to uh, uh, our outline number one. And what we're going to do is just to go, I want to go fairly quickly through, through this. This is, um, so if you read, if you have your copy of your articles with you, we can just read article number one. You'll notice that um, the first article begins with God. In the Westminster Confession, the first articles begin with Scripture, uh, on, the, on the authority of Scripture. Uh, the articles of religion here begin with God, believing that God gives birth to the Word. And that's the, the logic here. Um, whereas the Presbyterians would argue, it's the Scripture that gives birth to our knowledge of God. I mean, it's, it's neither here nor there. It's... it's uh, Six of one and half a dozen of the other, in my opinion. It, okay, so let's just read through article number one. There is but one living God. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now what I want to do is look at, at the first part of this, that is the unity of God and the attributes of God, and then we're going to have to leave the Trinity because till I can't... <laughs> To next time we meet, we'll do we'll do two. We'll, we'll include the Trinity in the doctrine of the incarnation. I think that's most helpful, um, and uh, we simply don't have the time to to broach the topic of the Trinity tonight. So, number f the the first thing that we have is the is the unity of God. There is but one living and true God. Now, um, can anybody tell me where the oneness of God shows up in the Bible? Where's, what's the great moment of oneness? Well, not, not about the Trinity here, but the affirmation that God is one. Way back. Hero Israel, right? That's called the 
called the Shema, right? It's called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. Now my Hebrew is really rusty. It's right here. So you see De- Deuteronomy 6.4? I tricked you. It was right there. <laughs> Deuteronomy. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema because of the Hebrew verb here, Shema, Shema Yisrael. Um, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one God. Now, just a couple of things here. Um, this is very important. Jesus repeats this. Jesus repeats this in, the, uh, in, in his, um, or I should say the Gospels repeat this in, in the affirmation of the law. Uh, what is the most important law? What's the important thing to do? Um, and in that discussion, the Shema comes out. What's significant here is that this is not merely a numerical unity. It's not just a numerical unity here that we're talking about. It's not just that he's one, but that there's only one. It's a necessary unity, not just a numerical unity. It's not just that there's one God, that our Lord is one, but that our Lord is only one. That is, there's no one else. There can be only one, I should say. Now, you just know, you notice the difference. To say that the Lord our God is one God doesn't preclude many other one gods. This was an age of polytheism uh, in many respects, but, but um, that doesn't preclude there being other monotheistic religions or other uh, unified gods. And so the Shema is really saying this oneness, it's, it is numerical unity, but it's also talking about the uniqueness of God. There can be no other God. There is only one. He is utterly unique. Now, I've, I've made a little note here about the, um, the, the creation account and the holiness and the distinctiveness of God. And it's important that as we read through Genesis 1 and 2, as Nathan knows very well now, having studied uh, in a very challenging context the Old Testament in the university, um, Nathan knows that, the, the, that, that 1 and 2 um, is really a, an argument against culture. The Hebrew poet is responding to a larger story about how the worlds were made um, with other gods, uh, various, various Bab- Babylonian uh, gods, Tiamat and, um, and uh, who was the son, who was the, 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 the man? Tiamat was the mother and the, the, main, the main god. There was the Baal, this Baal is part of this myth as well. Um, but the, 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 um, the Genesis 1 and 2 account is, is really trying to affirm the uniqueness of God, namely because the other creation myths involve God or the gods taking creation out of himself. Creation comes out of himself. In the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, God is always seen to be utterly distinct from his creation and then utterly unique, unique from it. Um, and this oneness, this distinctiveness of God is uh, very important like him. And holiness, holiness in the Bible, among other things, is always talking about the distinctiveness of God. God is utterly unlike his creation. He is utterly unlike his creation. 
He is like it in some ways, and yet he is utterly unlike it, utterly distinct from it, so that he didn't take anything out of himself to make it. He made it the phrase ex nihilo. He made it out of nothing. That's very, very important. That, that, that affirms the distinctiveness of God. So, it's not just a numerical unity, it's, it's a necessary, the necessary aloofness and aloneness of God. There can be no other one like him, ever. He is utterly unique. And then we go through these, we go through these, uh, these attributes here. Now, the, the relationship between the oneness of God and the Trinity we'll explore next, next time. But let's look at these attributes here. We see several attributes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine attributes that are listed here in the first article. The first, he is the living God. He's alive. And not merely is God alive, but he is in fact the source of life. Now, two verses I've given you here, the opening from John 1, which we, we, we won't read through all of these. You can read through those on your own. Uh, which affirmed that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was the life and the light of men. And then Acts 17, now what happens in Acts 17 is Paul's preaching to the the Areopagites, and he quotes quotes a a pagan poet, actually, Paul does. And there he says, in God we live, and we move, and we have our being. That our being itself is contingent upon God. Our being hangs on God. He is, he is the life giver. He is the living God. That any life which we have, any movement, I, I think that we, we're not quite getting this often, how profoundly and dramatically we are dependent upon God. Every movement I make, everything that has to do with being, happens only because I am rooted in the being of God and he is enabling everything I do. Every wink, every heartbeat, every step is out of the being of God. That is, you take away the being of God or take away me from the being of God, we just, we cease to exist. Now, if we had that frame of mind on a day-to-day basis when we wake up, if I were to be cut out from God, I would, I would just vanish. I would cease to exist. I depend upon God for everything. Um, that's what it means here by the living God. He is the life giver. He is the being giver. He gives us our being. Um, secondly, he is true. He is the God who cannot lie, as we read in uh, Titus 1-2. And he is in contradistinction to all the idols. Now, I'm going to read this short passage to you because I think it's very, it's a lovely, pa- I, sh- I shared this briefly with the uh, prayer group. Um, Jeremiah, by the way, is a beautiful book. I just, I think it's so gorgeous. Um, and uh, I am utterly taken with the prophet Jeremiah. I think dispositionally we're alike in some ways. Uh, but uh, he's, a, he's just a tender-hearted beautiful prophet, poet. And in chapter 10, um, the whole of chapter 10, um, you know what a great title for chapter 10 would be? Get a real God. Uh, get a real God. Look at, look at, just, number, just look at number, verse number 19. Woe is me. This is Jeremiah. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. This is how Jeremiah responds to all of the idolatry. It wounds him. 
under God. He's, he's the wounded prophet who wished that his, who had his eyes as fountain of tears. Um, okay, verse number 14, he's talking about the, the so number, verse number 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then going back to verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. Do you know the fear of God is due to him? It's owed to God. What, we go to church for a number of reasons. One of them is to receive from the Lord, to be, to be fed, to be nourished. But we also go to church because he, it's owed to God to receive the fear of the Lord and the worship that is due his name. This is the old teaching of the church. It's the teaching in the Bible. Who would not fear you? For this is your due. We are robbing God by not worshiping him. When we look, I think this is an important way to look at our evangelism. We should have compassion and sympathy, but we should also be, be uh, deeply, deeply wounded in our hearts because the nations are robbing God of their due. As they dilly-dally on the mountain slopes, and as they shop till they drop, and they do anything but give to God the fear that is owed to him. And uh, we've lost this as a church. We've lost it. And it concerns me. Um, and I pray that we get it back somehow. It's due to him. Who would not fear you? For this is your due. But then he's talking about, okay, now then he goes into the, to, to the idolatry. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. And then look over on... Um, he repeats this, uh, this idea of, of stupidity. Um, number, verse number 14. Every man, this is a great verse, I, every man is stupid and without knowledge. <laughs> it's not the most, just in case you're, yeah, you know. Let's put that on a t-shirt and walk around. And uh, every man is stupid and without, well, the feminists might like that. But, you know, the... <laughs> Uh, every man, it's like the story, you know, um, it's like the story of the, uh, the, uh, the woman who was asking God if she should leave her husband and she, she opened up the Bible and it fell to the verse, stay here with your ass for a while, uh, in the, uh, that's not what it means. It means every person. It's, not, it's, it's every person. Every person is stupid and without knowledge. Every, yes. This is the ESV. This is the, what Paul used. <laughs> what did yours say? Dull hearted. Dull hearted, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's... The New King James? New King James. Yeah. Um, well, I think stupid and dull-hearted is dense. Stupid is dense, right? We're, you're dense. If you're, you just don't get it. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't understand. Idolatry is stupidity. 
idolatry is stupidity. You'll see um, now the, worst part of, the worst part about this down on verse uh, 21. For the shepherds are stupid. They do not inquire of the Lord, and therefore they have not prospered, and all of their flock is scattered. The shepherds have become stupid because they've been given to idolatry. They do not seek the living God. So he is, he is opposed to all the idolatry of the world. And I, we don't need to go into this tonight. It's, it's very, what is idolatry? Idolatry is always when we prize the creature over the creator. Idolatry is always when we prize what was made more than the maker. When that becomes more important to us, we give in to idolatry. Now I can't count the ways, the way that even in my own present life, I am, I am te tempted to idolatry. You've forgotten me days without number, the Lord says. You've forgotten me days without number. You go on and on without me. Do you know how easy it is, guys, how easy it is to pick up a, a phone and talk to your friend first before you talk to God about something? We are so tempted to do that. We're so t and people can become idols. Wives and husbands can become idols. God wants himself to be first. And whenever we prefer the creature over the creator, we're guilty of idolatry. And the Lord asks us to repent. He calls us to repent. It's stupidity. It's just stupidity. He's the living God. He's the source of all life. Why are you going to all these other things? Why are you busying yourself with all this other stuff? I'm the, I'm the fountain. I'm the fountain. And you have not because you ask not. You spend your life doing all this other stuff. I've got so much to give to you, so much to pour out to you. But you're busy with your idols. Wood and stone and metal. You're sitting in front of the... the I, I love watching television. I do. I love drama. I love film. I love all those things. It's rich to me. But how quick you can become an idol. When I, I in, my, in, my, in my weariness, I want that to satisfy me and to build me up rather than going to the fountain and drinking deep from God. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it, he says. Um, and then we, go and we open our mouths to all. And I, I include myself in this. And it's a constant struggle. But he's the living God. He's a f the source of life as opposed to all, all, idol all, all idolatry. Um, and he's true. The idols will always lie to us. The idol will always lie to us. This is right through the Bible. Idols are false. Because they can't give you what God can give you. Do you know this? Let me say this as, a, as an aside. When we look to people <clears throat> for what only God can give us, we burden people. Because we're trying to pull out of them only what God can give to us. We burden them. It's hard on them. <laughs> and it's hard on us. Um, and uh, we have to watch that and watch our hearts in this. We are, Calvin said it very clearly. We are idol factories. We just churn them out. We churn them out. He is everlasting. Number three, he is everlasting. The only possible haven for the insatiable appetite of the human heart. Ecclesiastes chapter three, he has put eternity into man's heart so that God has given us an appetite for everlastingness. This is an important, um, uh, it's not only important for who God is, but it's important for understanding who we are, 
that we have this appetite for infinite, uh, for, for the infinite, for infinity. And this is what the world doesn't understand. This is what the university doesn't understand. Because the world will tell you to be content in feasting on the creature. But the creature is limited. And the creature can't satisfy us. God has put eternity into our heart. He's given us a craving to, 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 uh, to absorb his infinite uh, everlastingness. And without that, we, we, we are restless. And so Augustine's opening lines from the Confessions, can you, can you recall it, Nathan? And, and, and John, you can, you can, you've prayed it the other night, so you can recall from chapter 1, our hearts... Yes, yes. And our hearts are restless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Yeah, that's a beautiful line. It's how he opens the confessions. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I, you know, I, 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 I will, I will um, be very transparent that when I find I'm drifting from God, I get restless. I feel restless. My body feels, ang- my very body starts to feel anxious. I feel... And, and there's, that, there's that sense of peace when you're in the presence of God and you seek the face of God and you're reading His Word and you're bowing before the throne of grace, a peace washes over you. It's because the eternity that's been put in our heart is connecting to the everlastingness of God. And we find the nest that we belong in. We're meant to nest in God's everlastingness. Um, I love what, I love, so God is from before the world was made, Right, Psalm, this is Psalm 90. I'll just, I'll just repeat it for you. Psalm 90, 1 to 2. This is the prayer of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting past to everlasting future, God, you are. And it boggles the mind to think that at some point in that everlastingness, he decided to create the earth. But for limitless stretches of pastime, it was just God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly content with himself. He did not create us because he was lonely. (laughs) He did not create us because he was bored. He created us out of the overflow of his heart to give. His nature is to give. Um, but it wasn't because he didn't have anything else to do. I like what Augustine says. So uh, someone goes to Augustine and he says, what was God doing before he made the world? And Augustine said he was preparing hell for curious people like you. He said, <laughs> that's true. Well, that's not what God was doing, I don't think, but uh, that's what Augustine said. Now, a thought here on eternity I just want to bring to your attention. I think it's apropos and applicable. This is from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson is one of the most colorful Puritans, one of the most readable Puritans. The eternity of, uh, uh, the, the, the everlastingness of God brings to our minds everlastingness without God, which is a biblical doctrine. Listen to what Watson has to say here, and I want, want you to, to, to bring this home. Oh, eternity, if all the body of the earth and sea were turned to sand, and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill but the tenth part of one grain of all that heap of sand. What numberless years, 
would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away yet. If at the end of all that time the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But that word ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Now Watson the Puritan gives us a strong pictorial image of everlastingness without God. And we don't need to go into what eternal torment is. My, my best uh, definition of hell is that it's life without God. Sinners say they don't want God, and finally God gives them up to their desire to have an existence without Him. Who is the source of life? Who is the source of health and warmth and happiness? Without God, it's torment. And we, we need, as a church, to get back to this old-time religion of having compassion for those who are without Christ. It's, we're not just fooling around here. <laughs> There are destinies here. Um, you know, the doctrine of predestination and election notwithstanding, I think it's a godly compassion in us to not want people to go to this place. And it, 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 it um, pushes us out into the world. Um, um, if you've never... Uh, ex- there's, there's, a place, there's a place you can get to with the Lord where you begin to feel that deep, godly anxiety for the lost. Um, and I think we should all get to that place. I was at, um, and this isn't, I'll just in a very kind of oblique way, let me say I was at work one day when I was working at a hardware store and I um, had been going to the church to pray for my lunch hour, to pray for my, my co-workers. And um, I came back one one moment from prayer, and I, I, I just looked around, and it, I, it just hit me. Where they were going. <laughs> and I broke down. I just broke down, and my coworker had to come to me and say, are you okay? And I wasn't about to say, you know, uh, in, in the midst of her work, well, you know, the smoke of your torment goes on forever and ever. But there's a, there is a place that the godly can come in their compassion for the lost, and uh, we, we need to get there. We need to be there with the Lord. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, would you, would, that you've, you would have uh, come to me, but you wouldn't. Jesus wept tears um, over the lost, and so should we. He's without body, D. Without body, John 4.24, I, I don't think we need to belabor this. God is spirit, we read in John 4.24. God is not some... Uh, great big Zeus-like figure with a lightning bolt, right? I had a, I had a, um, um, an argument, which I tend to have from time to time, with a pastor of whose denomination I will not say, but he was convinced that God couldn't be a spirit and that God had to have physical form. He couldn't, he couldn't picture in his mind that God the Father was just some kind of, he, what, what did he call it? Some kind of amorphous cloud or something, you know? But even that is, a, is wrong because that's physical in itself. Um, and all I had to say to him was that, does, does, does God the Father look like an ape? Caught him in his tracks, right? If God the Father looks like a human, then God the Father looks like a, like a gorilla to some degree. Now, Jesus does because he became incarnate and became like us. God the Father is spiritual. 
and uh, he does not have a body, he, and, and therefore, E, he's without parts. Now, um, let, me go, let me go quickly here. The simplicity of the divine nature. Um, God's qualities, his attributes, his joy, his anger, his love, um, aren't separate from his essence the way that ours are. His love is his essence. God is love. And for that reason, God cannot deny his love. God cannot deny his faithfulness. God cannot deny his mercy. God cannot deny his wrath. Why? Because it is who he is. It's part of him. I can deny myself often. <laughs> Because I'm not love. I'm not faithful in my essence. Those are what we call accidents. The difference between an essence and an accident. An essence is the thing itself. An accident is the quality that, that adheres to it. God doesn't have qualities that adhere to him. And thankfully that he doesn't. Otherwise he might deny himself. Why cannot God stop loving you? Because it is who he is. I am. I am. I am who I am. I cannot deny myself. And so God doesn't get angry because of something that's happening out here. God gets angry because of who he is. God didn't send his son to the cross because of some situation that he saw. God did not choose to redeem us because of a situation that he saw. The whole plan of redemption is rooted in the being of God, um, which is very important. So he's without parts. There's a simplicity to God. It's not, it's not being and, and quality. It's just essence. And he's without passions, we read in the article. Again, this is very, very similar. God acts from his being, from who he is. He doesn't act from being moved upon. God does not act from being moved upon. Passions, when you're passionate, you have these feelings that go through you and you respond to them, or things happen from without you and you, you get worked up and you act. The Bible says that God's not, not like that. Now, two problems here, right? There are a number of what we call anthropomorphisms in Scripture. Well, doesn't it say that God was roused? Doesn't it say that God's anger was stirred up? Doesn't it talk about him in all these kind of human ways? And the way that theologians like to talk about this, at least the better theologians, is that these are uh, condescensions of God to our understanding. God has to present himself in terms of humanity so that we can get some feeble grasp of who he is. But it doesn't mean that the condescensions of Scripture, though they are true in a sense, are accurately describing the essence of God. Because not only does God condescend to talk about himself as a human, when we know he's not, right? God says, you thought I was like you. You thought I was like you. Not only does God condescend to, act, to talk about himself like a human, but he, he condescends to talk about himself like a bird. But just because the scripture says that his wings cover us and we're protected under his pinions, doesn't mean that God's, you know, the great mother goose up in heaven, right? Uh, so we need to be careful 
when looking at how scripture describes God, that we don't take these anthropomorphisms, which are human ways of speaking about God, and we forget that this is the language of God stooping down, God stooping down, so that he can, uh, you know how you talk to a two-year-old? Or one-year-old, you know? Uh, that you, you talk in, in very condescending ways to them, not to insult them, but it's like how we talk to Scout, the dog, right? Who's a good doggy? Right, you, you talk, <laughs> You talk like a dog. So God talks like a human to us. Um, the second is the problem of prayer. Now, I'm not going to go into this tonight. God never changes his mind. God never changes his mind. And yet it seems that he does. It seems that prayer is victorious over God. It seems that God sent Jonah to tell these people to repent and they repented and God relented. We have all this language of relenting and God changing his mind. God doesn't change his mind because he has no passions. Um, and he, his decrees are always firm and final. And yet there's a, there's a sense in which prayer is, is, um, it overcomes God and is able to kind of change the course of things. Now, two things I think are important here. One, God never changes his mind. His counsels stand firm, we read in scripture. Um, Two, somehow, in the mystery of God's providence, somehow, and I don't understand it, it's mystery. Even though mystery is the refuge for the poor theologian, uh, it, it is, uh, there's a mystery here. Our prayers are, are taken up into the decrees of God before time began. I don't understand it. But I tell you this, there's a nobility to prayer that we haven't even begun to fathom yet. We are entering into the decrees of God in our prayers. And if you think that your, lisp, your feeble lispings are, are just nothing, I mean, think of, think of the decrees of God, the book of, the book of life. God is, is, before time begins, He decrees what's going to happen in this universe. And your prayers are there. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I do know that it's a high and a lofty thing that we're dealing with here in prayer. So, um, he is of infinite power. Let's go, we're, we're getting late here, guys, so I'm going I'm to move through this rather quickly. Um, he is of infinite power. All things are possible to God. God's only limit is his limitless self. The only limit to God are the limits that he imposes upon himself on behalf of himself, who is limitless. Which means to say God can't deny himself. God can do nothing that is in contradistinction to his character. He will never do that. But all other things are possible with him. Uh, creation, ex nihilo, we talked about that. H, he has infinite wisdom. God's understanding has no end. Now, a couple things here. One, problem of history. How do you reconcile that with, our, with the history of the world? How do you reconcile the Shoah, the, the, which is the, uh, the, um, the um, liquidation of the Jews in Nazi Germany? How do you reconcile the Holocaust with the wisdom of God? If God is steering all things. How do you reconcile the, the liquidation of six million Jews with a wise God steering history? How do we reconcile the wisdom of God with the stuff that goes on in our own lives? Isn't that a, isn't that a, a trouble? We, something happens, 
my car just broke down again. And I, I think like, you know, it, the, the immediate temptation is to doubt that God in his overarching wisdom is ruling things. He's governing everything. We doubt it. Well, how do we deal with that? I like what Calvin says. What a tiny portion of that truly divine wisdom has given us in this present life. We've got a little, little sliver of what's going on. And we think, in our facile human minds, this little bit of noodle up here, that we should, we should deserve to figure things out. It's vaulting pride in us to, to re revolt against God in that way. We cannot understand it. Why? Because my noodle's too small. I've just got this little bit of gray matter here. And, and Calvin's right. We only have a tiny, tiny portion of that. And that's important to meditate on. And then Isaiah 55, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts as far as the heavens are above the earth. Finally, the infinite goodness of God. God is, is, is infinitely good. Titus 3, 4. Um, when the, I'll read that to you. I'm working through Titus, and I'm um, discovering this to be a very precious book. You'll recognize this verse when I read it to you. Titus 3, verse 4. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The gospel is the demonstration of the goodness of God. It is all about goodness and kindness. Sheer goodness and sheer kindness. And, and, and that's it. So when Calvin here, you look at, look at Calvin, when he, de when he defines the true believer, briefly, he alone is truly a believer who convinced by a firm conviction that God is a kindly and well-disposed father towards him, promises himself all things, everything, on the basis of his generosity, who relying upon the promises of divine benevolence toward him lays hold on an undoubted expectation of salvation. Now, that sense, that firm conviction that God is a kind and well-disposed father towards him is evidence that we've laid hold of gospel truth. The believer who believes God's my father, <laughs> he is good, he is gracious, he is kind, that's the person who has seen the gospel. And you can only see that in Christ. Outside of Christ, God is ter he's terrifying. This is Calvin's point. Outside of Christ, God will make your hair stand up on end. He's terrifying. Just sheer naked power. In the gospel, God comes clothed in kindness, clothed in generosity, unveiling to us. And so when we talk about here, the, the final point there in that section, the gospel, goodness, and assurance, assurance of the faith is the assurance of God's goodness and kindness towards us, that we have an overriding sense. And Calvin makes clear, it doesn't mean that we're not assaulted and afflicted by doubt at times, <clears throat> right? Bad stuff happens, trouble happens, and our default is to doubt God's goodness and kindness. That's the default. But underlying, underlying all of that, the, the, the gospel assurance is a conviction that God is good and he's kind to me. Not to humanity. <laughs> Not to the church. God is good and he's kind to me. That's important for all of us to, to um, consider. And I think it's true that... that um, I think Calvin's right. Wherever true faith doesn't reside, that assurance will be absent. That assurance will be absent. 
Finally, last little paragraph here. God is maker and preserver. This is the last, the last um, <clears throat> element of who God is. God's relation to the material universe, he's made it. And therefore, Christianity is decidedly different from all forms of Gnosticism. Now, without going into the, into the um, full description of Gnosticism, this is from the, um, the Greek verb gnosko, right, to, to know, um, that uh, the Gnostics felt that they had secret knowledge, and their secret knowledge was this, that whoever made the world, rock and stone and tree and stump, was a bad god. He was a demigod, substandard god. Whoever made the spirit realm, that's the real god. And so the goal in life is to get away from the physical. <laughs> we know as Christians that God is the builder, the maker, and the preserver of all things. Therefore, God puts his imprimatur, his stamp of approval upon all things physical and creaturely. Therefore, we not only have the right to rejoice in these things, we have the obligation to rejoice in all that God has made because it is the opportunity to praise the Maker. Now you see where Gnosticism slips into various Christian traditions? All the stuff that you can't, you can't do, you can't eat that, you can't eat that, you know, all the stuff that you can't eat, all these rules and regulations, or you can't drink that. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> <laughs> you can't listen to that music. You can't do that. You can't do that. With, you, you, can't, you can't be part of that dance or whatever it is. You can't do any of those creaturely things. And what happens? The church draws people away from opportunity to praise God for what he's made, to lavish him with affection. Now, when we treat the creature well, it always directs us to the creator. That's, that's the right use of it. When I have a really good pint of beer, I, it makes me just say, God, you are wonderful and glorious for what you've made, or a good glass of red wine, or a brick of cheese, or a delicious sandwich. I'm getting hungry now. Or, um, you know, listening to music. And, and it, it, doesn't need, it doesn't need to be a song. It doesn't need to be a song, of course. I mean, we need to be careful. We need to be judicious. We need to uh, uh, flee from every appearance of evil. That's true. But I can listen to some incredibly orchestral piece of music that some worldling has written that can't help but glorify God because that mind that made it was made in the image of God. And the artistry that comes out of that person, it, it can't help but praise God. Even the wrath of man <laughs> praises God. How much more Picasso's art or whatever it might be. Oh, I think Picasso had some semblance of faith from what I understand. So, it's, it's our obligation to praise God for physical things. And this has to do with not only the trees and rivers, and, and of all people, we should be involved in, in taking care of the world and stewardship. Of all people, we should be delighting in the physical world, because it's our Father's world. It's our Father's world. Of all people, we should be the most attuned to the glories of nature. Um, as we should be to culture. Culture is God's gift. Culture is God's gift. And I like what Abraham Kuyper says, there's not one square inch of any culture in the world that Christ does not say it's mine. He is the maker of these things. We should be, we should be, <laughs> it's not often the case, we should be the most culturally astute. But even, 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 um, 
Having said that, the, the, uh, the gifts of the world to appreciate culture, we ought to appreciate those as well. We ought to be mindful of good readers of culture, even in those who don't know the Lord, because these are God's gifts. So, let me say something. I think it's an important aspect of our witness. I think it's an important part of our evangelical witness to identify the gifts of God in unbelievers and to say to them, you are gifted by God. I see the gifts of God in you. I see the, the, I see the, the, uh, the presence of the maker in your life. You know, when you see worldlings, and sorry if that sounds dismissive, it's not, but when you see people in the world doing things well, remind them. Praise them, praise God on account of them in their presence. Say, I, see, I, see, I see the gifts of God in your life and, and see what will happen. Um, so we need to affirm these things. Uh, we need to have a good doctrine of creation. When we, when we, when we move away from a doctrine of the creator, um, we, we actually we lose opportunity to praise God. When we don't acknowledge his gifts in creation, we actually, we actually uh, don't give God what's his due. Um, and then finally, God's intimate relationship. He's not only maker, but he's preserver. God preserved. Now look at these, these uh, two verses here. In his hand, and it's just going back to what we said at the beginning. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see, hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And then the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The very breath of every living man, woman, and child is given by God. And people walk around, you know, and running around, doing their laps, breathing hard, thinking, you just do it like Nike, right? I'm just doing it. The breath is from God. It's His gift. And we walk around pretending that it's ours. You know what I call that as an academic? When you take something that's somebody else's and you say it's yours, it's plagiarism. The world plagiarizes. The world says it's mine. <sighs> Deep breath. I'm so strong. I'm so athletic. It's God. Every breath is given to them by God. And we all hang in the balance. That is, the God who gives breath is the God who takes it away. Our days are numbered. God numbers all of our days. He knows our beginning. He knows the end. He knows when he's going to take the breath out of every, every living soul. And I, I think that if the world could, could come to that place where they recognize, you mean that any second now, God could just take the breath out of my lungs and I'm done? That's how contingent we are on the Lord. That's how dependent we are upon Him. What, what, what reason for thanks, right? What reason for, for, for offering of thanks to God? And then finally, just this idea of His preservation. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. There's not a minute of the day when God in his intimate care isn't counting, he doesn't even let a hair drop off our head. Not a hair falls. Very important. It's, it's helpful for, for as we grow old and as we see our heads thin. None of that happens apart from God. 
There is nothing in our life that happens apart from God. He is the maker and he is the preserver. Nothing has happened. Not, he's not just allowed it. He is actively governing everything. Every little detail of your life, God governs and he uses for your good and his glory. And that's very, very important. Maker, yes, but he doesn't just wind the clock and step back and let us run around like, like rats in a maze. He is so close that not even one insignificant hair can fall, except he makes it so. He makes it so. And that gives great confidence to our prayers. I think that's something we should meditate upon every morning and every night. He's close. He's that close to all of us. Um, and that's especially important when things go awry. When um, some of you know that uh, I, we, Chris and I lost both of our parents in the same year. And uh, they were very young and I felt I was far too young. Um, how do you get through that? How do, you, how do you go through the shock of these things? Except that you know that not a hair can fall except God has ordained it to be so. That's, a, that's an encouraging thought, I think, for all of us. And uh, we all go through our, our struggles. Um, God is directing everything, folks. He directs everything. Maker, preserver, providential care, and builder. We, we are in the hands of God tonight. And that's a lovely thought.